When I was 12 years old, my family moved from Montana to Northern Virginia. One of my favorite parts about moving so much growing up is that you gotta see how different people from different parts of the country have different values, and none of them are right or wrong. So whereas in the uh, middle of Montana, people are very much about, oh, we're, just, we're all friends, we're you know, doing stuff in the outdoors, people are pretty simple, not simple-minded, they just care about you know, very different things than people that live right outside of Washington, D.C., where it's a lot more about who you know, status, what school you're going to. Like when you're a kid, these are the types of things that people talk about. And being one of uh, being one of six kids, my parents didn't spend a lot of money on you know clothes for their children, especially since my dad was in the military. So I wanted to wear different clothes than my uh, than the ones I was getting from my second cousin Chris, who was much bigger than me. And I asked my parents to take me shopping, and they're like, "Well, you, have, you already have clothes. I'm like, they don't fit me, and I want to be cool." And they're like, well, if you go make some money, you can go buy those clothes for yourself. How do I do that? So um, with a little bit of help from my parents, I figured out how to use like Microsoft Publisher to make flyers and I dropped them off all over my neighborhood and started a lawnmowing business. Uh, we got a bunch of customers and we held them for a couple of years, me and my brother did, and it bought me clothes, it bought me uh, my first computer that I bought for myself. It, it kind of got my, my, first, uh, my first dopamine hit for, man, you just go and like knock on a bunch of people's doors and ask for business. Eventually, some people will say yes to you. And... Welcome to Funds and Founders. This weekly show is tailored for Austin founders navigating the early stages of their entrepreneurial journey. I'm your host and fellow Austinite, Abhinav If you're looking for the motivation and the insight needed, to build a successful company, you're in the right place. Today we have on Brandon, who has a background in finance. He has done a couple sales roles. He co-founded a marketing agency, co-founded an HR tech company called New Caller, and currently is the co-founder and CEO of a company called Job Machine. Welcome to the show, Brandon. Why don't you give the audience a quick intro and then we'll go deeper into it. Thank you very much for the, the introduction, Abi, and thanks for having me on the show. My background is I'm a military kid. My dad was in the Air Force for 20 years, and I lived in eight different states before I turned 18. And then went to a small liberal arts school in Western Pennsylvania. Went from there to waiting tables and living in my parents' basement for almost a year while I looked for jobs I was underqualified for. And uh, eventually got an entry-level job in finance in uh, Pittsburgh. Did that for two years and uh, moved up to the back office, middle office uh, on a training desk for a financial services company. Uh, realized that I didn't want to be a futures trader and I decided to get a job in tech. So I moved to Austin nine, nine years and change ago. Nice. And worked in tech sales for a few years. I sold at two different software companies. The one was selling small businesses, the other was selling enterprise software. Started like a sales and marketing agency, as you mentioned. That failed quickly and then got another job uh, building out the robotics division of, uh, or I should say the oil and gas division of a robotics startup called Gecko Robotics. Did that for three and a half years. While I was there, I started working on a, a business on the side and then up quitting and going full time to work on a same industry idea, different business called Job Machine. And that's what I've been doing for almost two years now. So where would you say your entrepreneurship journey started? Would it be the marketing agency? Would it be sometime sooner? Did you do something when you were a kid or... Where would you say that journey started for you? Yeah, it definitely started when I was a kid. When I was 12 years old, my family moved from Montana to Northern Virginia. And we moved to a new place. And it, I'm not sure if you ever lived in Montana before. Yeah, never in that. Montana is an interesting place. I loved it there. It's really pretty. We were living in a town called Great Falls, which is pretty close to Glacier National Park. Got it. Nice. And um, 
That's on my bucket list of places. It's beautiful. I like love it up there so much. And one of my favorite parts about moving so much growing up is that you got to see how different people from different parts of the country have different values and none of them are right or wrong. And different, different values cause people to, uh, to function very differently. So whereas in the, uh, middle of Montana, people are very much about, oh, we're just, we're all friends. We're doing stuff in the outdoors. People are pretty simple, not simple minded. They just care about very different things than people that live right outside of Washington, DC, where it's a lot more about who you know, status, what school you're going to. Like when you're a kid, these are the types of things that people talk about and the types of clothes that you wear. Being one of six kids, my parents didn't spend a lot of money on clothes for their children, especially since my dad was in the military. I wanted to wear different clothes than my uh, than the ones I was getting from my second cousin, Chris, who was much bigger than me. And I asked my parents to take me shopping and they're like, well, you, have, you already have clothes. I was like, they don't fit me and I want to be cool. And they're like, well, if you go make some money, you can go buy those clothes for yourself. I think I just turned 13 okay. when I had that conversation. Like, nice. How do I do that? So um, with a little bit of help from my parents, I figured out how to use like Microsoft Publisher to make flyers. And I dropped them off all over my neighborhood and started a lawn mowing business. Nice. What was that first online business? So, um, lawn mowing. Okay, pretty cool. How did that first endeavor turn out? Were you mowing a lot of lawns or? Oh yeah, we got a bunch of customers and we held them for a couple of years. Me and my brother did and it bought me clothes. It bought me uh, my first computer that I bought for myself. It, nice. It opened up a lot of doors. Nice. What's one key thing you learned from that journey? It uh, taught me about sales and marketing. I nice. mean, I think that was the most important thing. I think with the time, I just assumed that it was kind of a given, but it kind of got my, my first uh, my first dopamine hit for, man, you just go and like knock on a bunch of people's doors and ask for business. Eventually, some people will say yes to you and created a lot of freedom in my life. I think a lot of people that I knew at the time had freedom with money because their parents gave them a lot of money. Yeah. That was pretty common where I grew up, at least in the circles that I was in. I associated that with working hard and going out and selling. So I think that kind of started me off for later in my career. 100%. Just random sidebar. Every time someone talks about business ideas, non-software businesses, in my mind, I'm like, okay, what was the CAC? What was the LTV? What what was it take to um, acquire customers? But sometimes businesses are just pure, just hustle, go get the customer, go find where they live yeah. and go sell them what they want. And you don't have to worry about these fancy terms and fancy things. But I was just thinking about that one. Yeah, like, well, it doesn't have to be complicated. You just have to go solve a problem. Well, I mean, it's there's not that much difference from a lawn mowing business and any other services business. 100%. I mean, it's it's the same thing, right? You go, you get a customer, and you know you're going to keep them for maybe just that one season while the grass is growing, maybe multiple seasons. And if you're going to scale that, then you'd have to hire other people to do the work for you, and you have to make sure that your margin after you know paying whatever it took to market the customers because you're not going to go and knock on all the doors yourselves forever. You may pay to run ads or you may do that. And you can do that, you know, either like using paper ads or you could do stuff on Facebook these days, but they're all the same thing. The other problem with services businesses is that they're uh, a lot more difficult to stay than software, which 100%. is the lesson I learned the hard way about six years ago. Um, let's move forward. After your uh, sales state, you started a marketing agency. Why did you decide to start a marketing agency? How did that come about? Well, it was really a sales agency, but I mean, in consumer products, they call it a marketing agency. But that was because like, I knew how to sell. That was my skill at the time. It's been about four years at that point selling software. And I had sold computers retail at Best Buy when I was growing up and I waited tables for a few years. And 
I had been, uh, been successful at uh, both of the software companies that I worked at, well, all the sales jobs that I did. I wanted to start a business. I knew that I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I had really big financial goals for myself. I had really big leverage on what that money was going to mean to me and like my life and my family's life in the future. I think that when it comes to working towards big goals, and you'll probably touch on this later, but it's important to have a lot of leverage. I knew what my leverage was. So even though I was doing at the time what I considered to be doing really well at the sales job that I was at, I knew that I needed to start a business. I know what kind of business. And I was at a point where I was like, I don't really know what to do. And I think that the the right decision is just to take action and go do something. And one of my really close friends at the time, his dad had a lifetime career in consumer products. And I knew nothing about selling consumer products. Consumer products being like, it could be like a, a Coke kit, like Coca-Cola's and yeah, CBG product. goods, yeah. Yeah, CBG yeah. goods. So if you buy like your local grocery store, like at a, at a bar or anything like that. Yeah. And he knew about how to do it. So I went to a trade show and started talking to people, <laughs> just asking you know, which of them needed help selling their stuff. <laughs> I started to get customers and about, uh, I got our first customer and about 45 days later, I quit my job. Nice. What happened with that journey? You said it failed miserably. Why did you end up shutting that down? The reasons I ended up shutting it down were basically what we did is we got two customers. The one customer was selling uh, CBD oil, like back in the very early days where not everyone knew what CBD was. This is yeah. like late 2017. Yeah. And then the other customer was selling organic kombucha but it was like a special kind of kombucha and they came in both non-alcoholic and alcoholic variety. So they didn't do a great job selling the CBD oil, but I did a really good job selling the the kombucha one. Yeah, Got them distribution in like three or four different states in nice. like 90 days and got them into every Whole Foods in nice. Texas and every Total Wine in Texas. Got, got a lot of wins for them. And the deal was set up, that, like the commission deal for it was, up, it was gonna set up like a quarter billion plus residual income for at least the next, I think, three years. I knew the VP of sales of that company and I didn't get it like there's there's things that I could have done with the legal paperwork, the contract to make it like a little more secure. And I didn't do that. And after I closed all the business, the owner, one of the owners of the business said, this is a crazy deal. We shouldn't have done this and just tore up the contract. So I went from like a quarter million residual to basically no money, like overnight. The other problem is that I started that business with like a, a business partner who had the exact same skill set as me. So I started with another salesperson, which I think a lot of founders do when they start a business for the first time is they go, oh, well, I need to go find someone who's like me and we'll do this together. I can't speak for everyone. I know that for me, that originated from a place of fear of not being able to figure out on my own. And I wanted someone to do it with. But ultimately the, the guy I was working with, I mean, really, really sharp guy, incredible salesperson. He also had a very different like risk appetite than I did. I quit my job, went full-time. He never went full-time uh, and he hardly did anything. And he was a 50% owner of the business. They created a bunch of issues. It just was clear that he wasn't involved. And it was in order to move forward, I was going to have to either like just end it and then like start a new one, you know, so that I owned the whole thing because he wasn't doing anything. 100%, yes. And the other thing that I realized is that services businesses don't scale. I realized that for me and the financial goals that I had, starting a services business was not the most effective way to do that. You can go from zero to one and start making money faster because you have a service and being tangible that you can do and provide to people and they'll pay you for it quickly if you're any good at it. Yeah. And that was evidence. If I would have gone and kept doing it, I could have found other customers and took the skills I learned selling CPG and succeeded really quickly. A lot of software salespeople who are really good, like right now with the uh, 
all the VC money running up because interest rates are up. I think a lot of those people could go work in like a field like CPG or anything but tech with the skills they learned in tech and make a ton of money. 100%. Because I was doing things that the CPG salespeople that were working around me didn't think was possible. They're like, how did you do that? I'm like, I'm just doing well, what we do every day at like a tech sales organization. I realized that like, okay, in order to build a business with the type of financial outcome that I want, I need to build a software company. And I tried to build a software company without any engineers or product people. And I realized that I'd gone about it the wrong way. At this point, I had a ton of credit card debt. I was really, really broke. I had a mortgage to pay. So I decided to go get a job and pay off my debt, build a war chest and go meet people that had different skills than me. Makes sense. And do it again. I feel like the, you, you talk about having a lot of maturity at this point. I don't talk about having maturity at this point. No, no. So like um, <laughs> the way you talk, um, because you say you have a lot, you have financial gold, you realize the position you're in, you identify that there is some co-founder mismatch and that you're in a spot that, you know, is not making sense, is not aligning, right? You have a futuristic vision. You have this place you want to be. When do you think you set up those goals. How did you come about those goals? How do you know that's where you want to be? Because I talked to a lot of early stage founders, younger founders, and they don't know, they don't have these goals set. They don't know how to set goals. How did you come to that realization? How do you know, hey, I want to do this. So this is not the right path because that helps in decision-making. But how do you get to that point in the first place? That's what I meant when I said maturity. Oh, well, like, thank thought, you. Yeah. No, that makes sense. I appreciate that. So for me, it started off when I had graduated from college. I was really excited when uh, I went to college to go, you know, get away from my parents and, you know, kind of have some space. And I ended up having an amazing time in college. You know, I did okay in school. I did great with like friends and social stuff. I had a real fun time. And I wasn't really very focused on career and, or mission stuff. I was just focused on having fun and make, making great friendships while I was in school. And after I graduated, I paid the price for that. And I've waited tables in my parents' basement for almost a year. Towards the end of college, I decided that I wanted to become a futures trader. So I wanted to go basically gamble on like soybeans and hidden currency yeah. futures and yeah. stuff in Chicago. And what I didn't realize is that, well, two things. A, in order to go do that right out of college, you probably should be, at least back in 2011 when I graduated, you, sh you, you should be a double major in econ and computer science from Ivy League school and have good grades. I had none of those things. <laughs> I didn't go to Ivy League school and I definitely didn't have good grades. The other thing that uh, I didn't realize is that you can go do that anyways if you're willing to go work an entry-level job in finance and go pay your dues. And I didn't know that that was the case. It's not like there was a lot of you know, ready information out there about that. So I just applied to lots of jobs that I was massively underqualified for and I made no progress. So I ended up going home and I basically weighed tables and I was training like, like Muay Thai, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu kind of stuff, working out on the side because I was really interested in, and that was just a skill that I'd always wanted to learn. So I was doing that and I felt kind of stuck. I ended up, um, I ended up meeting someone along the way, this guy who was a consultant at the lab, had a really interesting background. He had been going to, going to UVA and he wanted to be going to investment banking and he had the wrong major for it and he had a really difficult time getting in, but he ended up never working his way into it just by making like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of connections, phone calls, reaching out cold. He ended up becoming a banker, didn't like it, went to go work as like a, an aide in Congress. 
and made a bunch of connections, got into consulting, and then building his government, own government contracting business. The guy's very, very wealthy now. Every time I see him on Instagram, he's flying around in jets and stuff. So he's doing just fine. And at the time, he was still a consultant at Deloitte. And one of his things then and still now is he helps lots of people, just kind of mentors them and helps them along their way. 100%. I met him and he offered, hey, if you need help, he asked me what I was doing. I told him I want to be a futures trader. He goes, well, I think you could totally do that. I only spoke with you for a few minutes, but you seem like you have the, the right personality for it. You seem like, I think you'd be really good at that. I was like, someone thinks I'd be good at this? <laughs> Most people don't even know what I'm talking about. And he was like, yeah, we should meet for coffee sometime if you want my information, you know, let's meet up. And then meeting with him, and he offered, he gave me a bunch of great advice, started pointing me in the right direction. I would always ask people after I met with them, if I thought that they were, you know, smart, they were take, taking their time to, to reach out to me, I asked him, hey, what are like two or three books that you recommend that I read? And I asked him, what are two, three books that you recommend I read about futures trading? He's like, listen, man, I'm not a futures trader. I'm going to do my best to connect you with some people who maybe I want to give you some, some information about that. Though they're the ones to ask about futures books. And a book that made a big difference for me is this book by Napoleon Hill called Think and Grow Rich. Or yeah. He actually recommended the precursor to that, which is a little longer, a little more uh, hippy-dippy, but it's called The Law of Success in 16 Lessons. It's basically okay. a longer Think and Grow Rich. And I was like, okay, I'm reading the book. So I read the book and I took everything into heart. I took notes on everything. I underlined stuff. I did everything the book said. One of the things it has you do is it has you outline what's called your definite chief aim. And it's, I forget all the details of how it got this out of me, but it basically has you write down all the things that you want out of life, wasn't in like in all the things you're willing to give up in order to get there. And for me, I don't know where I pulled this number from, but I wanted to be worth, I think it was $30 million by the time I was 28. Got it. And I wrote that down on paper. And one of the things he has you do is he has you write it down on paper and read it like five or 50 times or something every morning and every night out loud, which is exactly what I did. So I started reading that and I had like that, I had a whole bunch of affirmations and stuff, that I wrote nice. a bunch of other goals. That didn't happen. I was not worth $30 million when I was 28. It rewired my nervous system to that's something that I was really focused on. And over the course of my career, anytime I get into position, I was always focused on acquiring skills that I knew were gonna help me get to the next level. And I was also really focused on focused on making sure that once I learned those skills, I was focused on the next step and the next step and the next step. Anytime that I'd learn a skill and I start to get really good at a job, I would, I would go, okay, well, I'm good at this job. I'm not really learning anything anymore. And I may be comfortable right now, but like if I don't keep moving, I'm, I'm not, this isn't going to get me to where I want to be. So, so yeah. then I just move on to the next thing. So yeah, I think it's super, super important to understand what your North Star is and make sure that you cut off all all other like options that aren't going to get you there. And you know, $30 million or $300 million, whatever someone's goal is, it's, that's not right for everyone. I just know that for me, that is what I cared about. It was like something deep down within me. It, for me, it had a lot to do with the types of properties that I wanted to own and the experiences I want to create for my family. And also for me, I've, I like to have fun a lot and I love to like do awesome stuff usually involving going fast with like the people that I love and care about. And I want freedom of my time. And for those things at the time, $30 million was the number. And that's what I started working towards. Nice. Is that still the current North goal, even if the time horizon has changed? It's much bigger now. Nice. And by the way, on that note, there was, there was definitely like some discouragement that came with being 27 and realizing, man, there's, I'm not hitting that goal. And I think Tony Robbins says that people overestimate 
what they can do in a year and massively underestimate what they can do in a decade. And having recently hit that that decade mark from when I set those goals, it's pretty incredible when you stay focused on something for that long, like what can happen to your capacity to bring those things into reality. Because when you really, really focus on something and you just do the things that are required over and over and over again for long enough, things can start to shift and change really, really quickly. And then the reality is they're not shifting quickly you just done a lot of work for an extended period of time and all those results can start to catapult you into the future that you wanted in a much shorter period of time than you thought was possible. But it's a combination of literally like, at least for me, like 12 years of work. There's a couple sayings, right? Like if you do 0.1% better every day, it compounds, but over 365 days or 10 years, it's, I I don't know the thousands of percentage, I don't know the exact number. And like similarly with angles, if you go one degree in the right direction today, 10 years down the line, that's so much more in the right direction than one degree in the wrong direction, right? So there's a lot of ways to look at that, but people highly underestimate how making the right moves, even though there's no immediate gratification, but there's patience, you need patience. It's a marathon, everything's a marathon, but everyone's just, I, I need it today. I need it now. I need the gratification yeah. today, which may may harm you or may not get what you want. About a year and a half ago, I was kind of obsessed with with maximizing my testosterone naturally. And I did a bunch of things that worked really well. And I was kind of stuck at like a certain threshold I wanted to get higher. Yeah. And I heard that cold plunging like helped with that. I, I went and I bought a chest freeze and I like found like a guide and I retrofit it. And I uh, built a cold plunge in my garage. I started doing it every day. And it definitely like increases your testosterone. I don't care what anyone says. Like I did blood work every six to eight weeks for like years. And my testosterone went about like 30 to 40%. To nice. that. And it also like, almost tripled my free testosterone, which nice. for anyone on here who's into that stuff, nice. that's what actually matters. But the big thing is that going into 36 degree water for two minutes every morning for 14 months in a row, this is what I've done now, at least every day that I was home, I've done that. Even when it's in the 30s outside, yeah, yeah. it sucks a lot. And it doesn't really get easier. You don't shiver as much, but it still sucks like, every day. And one of my mantras to myself, after I'd done it for a long time, I was the novelty wore off and it became more of like a chore. One of the things I'd say to myself is I move towards discomfort with speed and certainty because on the other side of discomfort is everything that I want that, out of life. 100%. And people even don't realize it. It's not suffering. Like discomfort is an illusion. It's a creation of the mind. They're not our thoughts. It's somebody else's thoughts that we picked up from the ether or like infinite intelligence. It's all, it's all an illusion. If you know that it's going to get you what you want, you need to do that. You need to build that muscle because the more that you do that, it's going to make everything else easier in life. And with a lot of like the hard decisions and hard things that I've had to do, what seemed to me hard now, I think that who I am in 10 years will probably look at the things I did now and look at them as easy. And the things that seemed hard this last year that I had to do to get the business to where it is today, it makes it a lot easier to do those things because I start my day like jumping into 36 degree of water and going into fight or flight. Do. Um, do you know who Jesse Itzler is? Yeah. Um, have you read his book, Living with a Seal? Yeah. So when you say, um, there's a line in that book where one of the first runs he's taking, he's like, it's freezing cold outside. And David Goggins is like, I look outside and all I see is sunny and 65. And he's like, it's a notion of your mind. And what you see outside is what you want it to be. 
That's right. You think it's cold and freezing, but I see sun because I have to go on a six mile run. And for me, it's sunny. I don't care what the temperature is, but I see sunny. So I'm going to go enjoy this run. And I believe that it's all a state of mind. It's all what you believe it is versus an actual like pain versus hardship versus like what you're going to feel, right? But that that line where he says, I look outside and I see sunny in 65 is very much, you got to train yourself to pick your battles and choose your battles and see what am I going to win? What am I going to go fight over? What am I going to go do? And how am I going to go reach my target? Like you said, I have to go and what's the line you used? Whatever's over the hardship, there's only winning yeah. on the other side, right? Yeah, on the other side. So 100%. <laughs> yeah, on the other side, discomfort is everything yeah, I will yeah. out of light. Yeah. But no, I 100% agree with what you're saying. Going back to your journey, kill the marketing agency, and you decide to shut it down, take a sales job. What happens after that? Going back to the way that I've made decisions for the last 12 years, I asked myself at that point, all right, well, like, what is going to get me closer to where I want to be? And I needed two things. I needed money and I needed skills. I had the opportunity to work at a, you know, really solid Austin-based, you know, enterprise tech company selling software. And I could have made much more money there than at the, com than at the company where I ended up working at. The difference is now I was going to do more of what I'd already done. I, I'm sure I would have gotten better at selling enterprise software. There's certainly nuance to that. And the company that I was going to work at, I would have been surrounded by incredible people, like world-class people. And there are many people whom I still am close friends with and would have really enjoyed working with. And at the other company, I was going to be the first oil and gas salesperson for this robotics company. At the time, they sold robots that climbed up the walls of the insides of power plants and did what's called non-destructive testing. So where they basically pulse sound waves into steel to see how many thousands of an inch was remaining on the inside of these steel tubes to prevent these power plants and refineries from going kaboom. That was, first off, very different and very interesting technology, very different than anything that I'd sold up until that point. So I knew that this is an opportunity to learn how to sell something different. One of the things that I learned from the consumer products business is that I learned so much about sales by having to sell something I didn't know anything about. It was a new vertical, new industry. I learned about new buyer personas. I learned about solving problems differently. That's one of the things that I realized is that, you know, most companies that get started, most like startups, you need a couple of different personas. I think I learned this from like running Lean, which is kind of an offshoot of, I think the Lean startup maybe. Yeah. I've like read parts of Lean startup. I read all of running Lean. That book was amazing. And it talks about how you need three types of people to start a company. You need a hustler, you need a, a hacker and a designer, which is basically code for you need a sales guy, a product guy, an engineer. Yeah. The thing is, you really don't need a sales guy. You kind of do. What you really need is you need someone who's good at business development, which is I define as someone who can go in and understand a problem really well, understand the market for, for that product. And like, because in order to do that, you have to understand what is the financial value of solving that problem. So if you're going to save a, an oil refinery, a million dollars per tank per year, at that refinery, then, and this is not exactly how this would work, but I'm just doing it as an example. And they have a hundred tanks. Well, that's a hundred million dollars that you save that oil refinery per year. And if there's 132 oil refiners in the United States, then you take that number and that's like how much, and take that number like times 132, and then you, you multiply that and that's how much money you're saving. Them. And a pretty good rule of thumb that I've found that I picked up from um, 
a product leader that I worked for at GetGo, is that if money you're going to save the customer, you should be very, very easy to be able to take 10% of that. So I get caught on how to do that. I got to run around and I figured out how to sell this robot, which we had never been sold to oil refiners before. And while I was there, I was there for three and a half years and we grew it from just me to seven salespeople nice. and like 25 or 30 operators. Nice. They didn't all report to me. I, I'll get to that in a second. Yeah. We closed our first deal with Exxon, Chevron, World at Shell, BP. I think Sitco while I was still there. Dow Chemical, closed all kinds of deals and more, all, all these nice. massive companies. It was, it was insane. It was such an amazing experience. I traveled over 200 days a year for the next three and a half years. Like one year I did 273 on the road. Nice. I got to go speak at a, like a global robotics summit and like, you know, rub shoulders with like BP executives, which at the time I thought was a really big deal. Nice. It, it was like the best learning experience ever because I got to learn how to do business development. I got to learn how I learned about margins. At the time, it drove me crazy and I couldn't be more grateful for it now. But the guy that I worked for, one of the founders, he was very, he's a finance guy. So he cared a lot about this thing that we don't talk about in software very much called margins. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, you know, there was a lot more, you know, control on things like discounts. I had yeah. to think about, okay, well, what's it going to cost to go do this job? Because we were selling robotic services, we yeah. were selling yeah. robots. I had PLs for every job. And if, me or my sales reps didn't have a good P&L on the jobs, we wouldn't get paid. So we started thinking about that and I got to hire people. So I got to learn way more than I would have at the other company. And then I, I, I did fine there. I didn't do poorly. It just, I didn't make the same way. Yeah. When you, if you're really good at selling SaaS in Austin, especially from like 2018 to 2022. It could have made a good chunk of change. Yeah. Well, at the time it would have seemed like it. I yeah. went to learn all the things I did. 100%, so yeah. So I ended up doing that in about a year, year and a half into it. I don't know if I would have been the VP of sales. And like, I know that if I was going to keep working at that company, that was the path that I was going to be on. And I started to get a little distracted and I had a conversation with a friend who is uh, busy with talent and she kind of challenged me on, you know, hey, what are you doing? And I kind of talked a little bit about how much equity I had in the business and what I thought was possible if I became the VP of sales. And she was like, well, what do you want to do? I was like, well, you know, I really want to start this company. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of risks there. And I do have all these things lined up and things are going really well right now. She looked at me, she, she goes, well, I mean, if you want to argue for what's holding you back, then you can keep it. And at that point I was like, okay, I guess I need to start planning my escape. <laughs> so I started the next day or the next week, I started looking for a co-founder to do the next thing, which nice. is what, where that came from. About two and a half years from that point, I actually quit and go full time. So there was a lot of work that went into that. So at this point, um, I'm assuming you've paid off all your credit card debt. You're now in a much better spot. You've learned from your co-founder um, mistake the first time around. Well, what are you doing differently on the second time and to make a better co-founder choice? How are you going about this the second time around? Well, again, there's nuance to it yeah. because I thought that I had it all figured out. So I'm like, I need to find an engineer. What I didn't realize at the time, because I hadn't read that Running Lean book, is that there's a difference between a product guy and an engineer. 100%. Um, you get it. You run your own agency. Yeah, 100%. And I found a world-class engineer. And I found a world-class engineer who had a different risk profile than me. A very entrepreneurial guy. I take really big risks in my life. I always have, and I'm going to continue to, because yeah. it's kind of in my nature. And right. his risk, risk appetite was a little different than mine. And I love that guy to death. We're still friends, and he's an absolute genius. He's an incredibly intelligent uh, person, a great professional, and has a ton of integrity. And we ended up building something together. We started working on on the idea. We ended up closing a couple of customers, very small customers. And 
I decided it was time to go full time because I had had the money saved up for a while. I was getting that itch where I was like, this is ridiculous. I need to go keep taking action. I'm not learning. The only way that I'm really going to figure this out is if I go full time. And we've been getting into some disagreements about how that arrangement was going to look like. And we ended up having a bit of a falling out and we parted ways. So that was in January of 2022. So almost two years ago, I ended up deciding that I was just going to go start over because we worked together up until that point. Any IP that we that we created, any software we created, way well, hey, I didn't build it. So I understand how it ever worked. I'm a, I'm a sales guy. Yeah. You know, he owned part of that and he didn't want to just sell it to me or anything. Yeah. So, because he understandably, you know, had an emotional, you know, emotions invested in that. So I decided to start over and figure out something new to build. We had that conversation about a week and a half before I quit my, uh, watch it was the day before I, like I gave my two weeks notice and, um, or it was a couple of days before, but it was right before I was giving my two weeks notice and I was already planning on doing that. We poured ways and I gave my two weeks notice anyways. And I said, I understand the, the market pretty well. I understand a lot of the problems well, and I'm either going to burn the boats and to make myself take the island. And I just said, I'll find a way or I'll make one. And I quit the job. So, um, for those listening who don't know, why don't you just give a quick intro on what the idea was? How did you enter the HR tech space and w what is the general problem you're trying to solve here? Sure. So I had a difficult time getting my first job out of college because that guy that mentored me, he turned me into a job getting machine. I got really good at it. So when I switched careers and went from finance to tech sales, it was real easy. It didn't take much work because I'd already been through it once. Yeah. And over the last decade or so, my side hustle slash passion has been for free because I didn't charge anyone for it. It's been helping people get jobs. So I just helped a lot of people get into tech sales or work on their resume, coach them through interviews, do my best to give them you know advice on the right decisions to make. And about four years ago, one of the things that I realized from the last business, the last started back in 2018 was that with the sales agency is that I wanted to solve a problem that I was really passionate about. What I'm passionate about is helping people. 100%. And I also believe that you solve a big enough problem for enough people, you're going to make a lot more money because you're you're adding value to 100%. That's what value is. It's uh, solving problems for people. And if people aren't willing to pay for it, it's not very valuable. I started to work on solving the pain associated with getting a job. And I narrowed into military veterans because like my dad served in the military for 20 years. I knew that that people getting out of the military, all being equal, especially the enlisted, enlisted folks had a really difficult time getting a job in the civilian world because a lot of their skills don't directly translate over. Even if they did, there's a lot of things that you just don't get taught while you're in the military. It's certainly not when you're transitioning out. Yeah. There's resources to go into doing it and that some of it's really great. There's a lot of really awesome people that work to help veterans as they're getting out. And a lot of the information isn't uh, that useful or relevant or accurate. Uh, so I started helping military veterans out of uh, Fort Hood, Colleen area, get jobs in Austin, like for free. I was like, I don't, I don't know what the problems are. And if I get out there and help enough people to start to learn things and familiarize myself with it. So I did that for, for a year or two and then started to learn about some of these programs in the government to help upskill and reskill veterans. And I started doing some consulting in that space well, after I went, went and started working on the job machine full time. So I started working on that and then I stumbled onto one program in particular where there was an opportunity. I was focused on helping military veterans get jobs in tech, learned a little bit about the market and I ended up 
realizing that there was that it was a huge problem. And because there's a huge problem, there's a lot of money to be made. And being the salesperson that I am, I sold a couple of customers uh, software that didn't exist yet. I think they call that vaporware. And then I ended up, this guy that I worked with, they didn't work with them, but he'd been introduced to me by one of the founders of the enterprise software company I'd worked at like six or seven years before. He introduced me in like 2019 when I was looking to start a business again. I'd asked him, hey, who do you know in the area in Austin that's doing something cool? It's kind of early stages, a big hustler and is, you know, I want to be around that people that have really big goals and work really hard because you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. And I really believe that proximity is power. 100%. So he introduced me to him, this guy, Trey, most of us my business partner. And it's funny because I didn't notice at the time, but when we met, Trey thought I was trying to get something from him. He's the founder CEO of this uh, company called Chronologic that was at one point valued at $70 million. He had raised $20 million over the years for it. So he, he was just coming up. I think he'd raised like 10 at that point. And he thought I was trying to work for him or something. And, and then it's funny because if, if he were here, what he'd tell you is he'd be like, yeah, I thought Brian was trying to sell me something. And after a while, I realized he was just this high energy sales guy. He just wanted to you know, be around yeah. people that were doing cool stuff. So we became really close friends. I started hosting this event in my place for like for friends every other Thursday. And I've done that for a couple of years now. And he right. started coming at one point after he exited his last business, the one uh, that I told you about. He kept hearing about what I was doing because I'd always ask him questions because he is a, I should say a product guy. Nice. So he thinks about things very differently than I do. And one day I came over to his place, my move to kind of get time with Trey is I'd call up and I'd be like, hey, I learned something. I think there's a really good business here, but I don't know what to make of it. Can I bring the whiteboard over? He's like, yeah, bring the whiteboard. So I come over to his house and bring a whiteboard, a couple of cigars, and we like drink some whiskey and like smoke some cigars and etch a sketch all over the whiteboard and like put together something. I'd be like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. All right, well, I'll go sell this. And then I'd just pay him in cigars and and, and uh, conversation because he loved to kind of talk about that stuff. And after I closed those customers, I came back to him and I went, hey man, I know what I want to build. I don't know if it's going to work, but I think it'll work. I got like a budget for it. I, I had savings at this point. So I was like, hey, like, do you know anyone in your network who could build this? And he kind of looks at it and he's him think to himself and he goes, well, I mean, if someone was going to do this, they probably have to do X, Y, Z, and they didn't need to know how to do ABC. And I'm kind of a free agent right now. I'd be willing to do it. Like, really? You would? He goes, yeah. Well, how much would it cost? And he tells me and I go, listen, man, like I, you know, I'm bootstrapping this. I'm tired of budget. Did you for this much? And he agreed and he built it on schedule. And nice. we had a lot of traction, like right from the get go. And nice. I just kept, we just kept having conversation with customer after customer after customer. And we get done with it and he's like, all right, I want in. What do we got to do to make me a, a co-founder? And we got a deal done and he came on. Well, we, we built that thing. It didn't work <laughs> at all. You know, it's, it's funny oftentimes how wait, you think you understand the problem, just uh, to build something, which by the way, we built really quickly. We got done in like three months. We got an MVP out there. Yeah. We realized almost instantly that this thing wasn't doing the job. And then we got scrappy. So I was kind of just doing a lot of manual things to deliver what the software was supposed to do. And then Trey being the product guy that he is, he was a product guy, not an engineer. He productized a lot of the things that I was doing. And we ended up launching what's what we now call the job machine. We went from zero to $550,000 ARR in five months with just two employees. And we uh, were actually EBITDA positive in October nice. and November. So nice. But yeah, there was a lot of uh, scarcity along the way, definitely right out of uh, the war chest and then some. So it was pretty fascinating experience the last year or two. Okay. 
because um, we first met on the Saturday walks in Austin called the boardwalks, right? And I think on that walk you mentioned you guys just went positive and there's some notion of like, you were happy about like, hey, you, we just went positive. It's been a journey. And that's what we started talking about on the walk. Throughout this journey, you went from idea, whiteboarding, validation, paying customers, MVP. What part of this process would you say was insightful and learning? Because you started out with one problem, you built a solution, and now you have something completely different. That's very key to the process, right? And sort of what I'm trying to get at is founders and people early in their journey listening to this are very tied to the solution. But I want to hone down and say understanding the problem is very important. So why did you guys decide to do customer interviews? You had a problem. You had an MVP. Why not just keep building on that MVP? Why go and do more customer interviews? Was there something you were seeing? Did you still not know not know what you were building? Why go deeper and like try to understand from the customer? A lot of our process for this, I got to learn from other people's mistakes. I worked for a couple of really great companies over the years, and those companies grew to the size they did because they did some things right. And um, at least a f couple of them stopped growing at the size that they did because they stopped doing what worked early on. And the reason that they grew early on is because, at least in most instances, because they understood their customer's problem really well and they solved that problem and they delighted their customers and people signed up in droves. And then what would happen very frequently is people at the company who usually weren't talking to customers at all or even talking to salespeople who weren't talking to customers would make assumptions about what the customers really wanted and without validating if someone would actually, you know, exchange money for solving that problem and they'd build it. And then customers would go, oh, okay, what do I do with this? And salespeople would be trained to talk about it a certain way and they'd be like, okay, but like, that's not really an, an issue for me. There was no emotion tied to it because they were solving a problem. And then companies would hire teams of 30 or 40 engineers to build these new product lines that wouldn't, that no one would want to buy because no one, th you know, exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, uh, because it was ever validated. So what startup founders don't realize is that their product is not their product. Their product is their business model. I'm taking that from that Running Lean book. I'm sure that the Running Lean book got it from one of the books behind me here that, that, that's written in a bunch of places. And that's something really important to understand is that your product is your, your business model. And your business model, it all comes down to what problem are you solving for? How many people have it? How much are they willing to pay for it? And then what's your what's your revenue strategy there? Are you charging recurring? Are you charging per occurrence or outcome like we do? There's a lot of different ways that you can, there's a lot of different ways to skin a cat and there's pros and cons to solve it. And ultimately, if you can't sell whatever it is that you've built, it means one of two things either. A, you don't know how to sell, you're not selling effectively, or B, your product sucks. And product sucks is such a crude way of saying it. It's that you don't have product market fit. 100%. And yeah, it's it's such a big deal because we, again, like we understood that there was a problem. The thing is we didn't understand, we didn't understand how the market worked because we have a machine that gets people jobs. We didn't understand the ways that employers wanted to interface with the world. We didn't understand their problems and we weren't meeting their needs. We were, we were working to meet the needs of just the candidates and not also the employers. So understanding how we could get the candidates the result that they want while, without creating an extra burden of work and calories right. expended for the employers, we were going to add value to them. So what I would say to, to founders when they're building a business is the most important thing that they can do is don't talk to customers 
and go and, and ask them about the problems that ask them, you know, for you starting a podcast. A question I might ask you is, you know, hey, Abby, you know, it's really cool learning about the podcast that you're starting. And when you're at home at dinner at night, talking to your, your wife about, you know, the difficulties with starting a podcast, what are the things that, that you talk about? Or, you know, you're talking to a working professional. Yeah, man, when you're at, when you're at happy hour with Jim, what are the things that you, that you complain about? Those are usually the things that people will pay money to solve for. 100%, yeah. And then asking them questions like, how much time do you think that, that costs you? Or how much money is that wasting you? And so it's easier in things like in consumer products or in heavy industry where I was selling robots, solar finders. It's really easy to quantify things. And if something is costing somebody time or productivity, those things can be measured. And if the amounts are big enough that they can be quantified and, and you put a number on it, it's a big number, again, take that number and multiply it by 10% and then figure out how many other people have that same problem. Because you could find, this is one of the things that Gecko taught me really well. I went all over the world a couple of times. I would go all over the United States for sure. into the middle of nowhere. I talked to these refineries or chemical plants and I had to get really good at understanding that, understanding whether the problem that someone was talking to me about was a problem that just they had because they had a certain type of like alloy of steel that had this issue or like this particular situation because they built the refinery poorly. <laughs> And then they had this, this nuance that yeah. was going to be an issue for just them, or is it something that was systemic and it was going to be at every oil refiner, at least the vast majority? You, have to, you can do the same thing with any problem. You want to figure out how big is the market because if you're okay with just building a three or $4 million you know, lifestyle business with two employees, what you can totally do, you may be okay with that. And if you're like me and you want to make a whole lot more money than that, 100%. you'd better you gotta think, think bigger. You gotta think bigger. So you may want to, you know, go after like the whole US talent market. Because that's bigger. And it's gonna be a harder problem to solve for. It'll probably take more time. And it's all about what you're what you're working towards. Um, you mentioned two things. Um, so one sidebar. Do you think you having a sales background has aided or helped with your trajectory as a founder, SaaS founder? Um, start a founder because personally, I feel like one thing I lack is just sales overall. I understand sales, but I'm not a great salesperson. It's it's something I'm trying to learn, understand, get better at. But like you said, at the end of the day, if you can't sell your product, you could have the best product in the world. But if if you can't get someone to use it and click on it, or you know, get their hands on it, it doesn't matter, right? Do you think having a sales background? has helped or just made your journey better and helped your product journey, um, building a SaaS company, a tech company? For me, it has. I think that for some people, it could be a bit of a crutch. It can actually get in the way of them starting a company. There, there's two questions and I wanna answer both of the first. Yeah. The first is, does my, did my sales background help me? And the second question is, well, like there's, there's a couple layers to yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. So, in answer to your question, it definitely has helped in terms of going and getting customers. Getting customers for us is really easy. The thing is though, the reason getting customers is really easy is because we have an incredible product. The offer for our product is such a no brainer that anytime we need to get more customers, I'll sell for a week and I'll, I'll accidentally oversell us like more than we can afford to grow for the next like three to four months. So it's easy. I don't hardly sell at all in our business. The, the skill set that really has helped me the most it was what I learned when I was working for that Gecko Robotics company when I was going and I was learning about problems and figuring out, because I, I would have to go in there and I have to figure out, do they have a problem we can solve for? Can we solve with our existing robotics platform? If we need to make modifications, how much would those modifications cost for our engineering team to make? How difficult would they be? 
And then what's the size of that market? I would get grilled by my boss about whether or not it was going to be a, a good move or not. Even when it was sometimes, man, it would take months to build the case because my boss knew I was a good sales guy and I'd, I would get myself sold and I'd get him sold if he wasn't careful. Yeah. I think he was wise for doing that. It definitely made me better. And there are some projects that I wanted to do that we didn't do that I think maybe we should have. And there's, and there's also some that we did that, that we probably shouldn't have done. There's also some that we did that ended up making the company a ton of money. And more importantly, it's making me money now because I got to learn how to have this conversation with people because there's a, new, there's a nuance to it and there's a cadence to it. You can't just go in and close them on something that doesn't exist yet. You're learning about a problem. You're scoping the project. 100%. I mean, and you do this very similarly with your agency when 100%. you're building these things. That was really, really helpful. Now, when it comes to closing deals, yeah, like it's definitely helpful to know how to get a contract over the finish line, all like the sales and negotiation tactics, which I'm sure there's ways to learn it faster. I mean, you've probably read a lot of the same books that I have over the years and I've done I mean, thousands of sales presentations. I made like eight, 70 or 80,000 cold calls. So I'm definitely good at reaching people. The thing is though, and this is, this is where, I'll, where, where I was going with this, is that that doesn't scale where it does, but you have to hire salespeople. Salespeople are expensive. Full-time employees are expensive. One of the things that me and Trey see that we have been very careful to not replicate with our business, which is why we're EBITDA positive, is that full-time employees are really expensive. And most startups... They take problems that should be solved with engineering and they bundle them up with people. I think that's something that software companies are infamous for doing yeah. is they sell a software solution and then they basically do what I've done numerous times, which is be the software that we haven't built yet. And they build whole companies around that. And that's not why all of them, that's why many venture-backed startups, you know, they burn millions of dollars a year. It's not the only reason, it's one of the primary reasons, I think. So companies that with really, really good products we're firm believers that you should be able to build products in a way to where they market themselves. The way that you do that actually is, and we haven't done this yet, that's what we're working on this next year. If you can add so much value to someone, whether it's a huge raving fan and you don't ever have to talk to the customer, that's how good you want your product to be. You don't really have a customer yeah, success date. 100%. So you create something that's so good that they're a huge raving fan, and then you find some way to add value in like the transaction between them and other potential customers, to where you're adding value to where you can basically get your customers to sell for you. 100%. And you call it a referral. There's other like creative ways and different types of businesses and different markets where you can do that. If you can do that, you never have to, you never have to have a sales team. So I think that, uh, and I know this because I worked for, for at least one of them, you can make up for having a bad product for a while with a great sales team and your business will eventually go under because you hit a certain point where your cost of, acquire a customer becomes really it, high it becomes really high and then because you know your it's your business infrastructure gets bigger and you start losing all your customers because you churn we have a hundred percent customer retention rate with our business nice so that's very unusual for certainly the companies that i've worked at um i think basically every company and it comes down to having like a really good product the second thing has to do with salespeople getting into starting companies I want to touch on this because one of the things that I've seen is that I have a lot of friends who are in sales and tech sales, and they said they wanted to start a company and they never did. My business partner from six, seven years ago was one of them. And what I found is that salespeople get golden handcuffs because once you start making two, three, $500,000 a year, and you're in like your mid to like twenties, it's pretty difficult to go from making a half million or even $200,000 a year and, and then going in and making no money or 
the way it works is being a founder, losing money. And one of the reasons that I was able to do that is because I had, you know, I had a BHAG, I had a big, hairy, audacious goal, and I was willing to do whatever it took to delay gratification for however long I needed to in order to get to where I wanted to be. So I think having a sales background is the single most important skill set that a founder could have. I think that everyone that wants to start a business should either go get a sales job or they should at least like like start selling something like, like it'll it'll change their lives forever. And they need to be very wary that like they understand what they're what they want. They need to have big enough leverage to stay the course long enough to actually see it through because I've seen a lot of really, really gifted people get caught up in the comfort and the certainty associated with, you know, making great W2 income 100%, 100%. and staying in there forever. Which by the way, there's nothing wrong with that. If that's what somebody wants, that is amazing. And by the way, there's no guarantee of freedom of your time or with money starting a business for most people. And yet to be seen for me too, it, uh, you can stay on that, that hamster wheel for a long time. And there's definitely a the the upside starting your own business is a lot higher than 100%. 100%. You mentioned product market fit. Do you think you found product market fit with Job Machine? And how do you define product market fit? So we have with the, within our SOM, you know, Tam, Sam, yeah, SOM. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Tam, Sam, and SOM, I think that they stand for total addressable market, strategic or Serviceable, uh, uh, serviceable addressable market and then strategic operable market or yeah. something like that. Yeah. All they really mean is it's like your TAM is the whole market that you could potentially get. Your SAM is what you want like two, three steps ahead. Yeah. And then your SOM is where you're making money right now. We've got product market fit for our SOM. Nice. Like big, big product market fit. We have more customers lined up that want to sign up than we're willing to take on right now. Nice. So we've got product market fit for them. Yet to be determined for for our SAM, we've got a couple customers in that space, and then for our TAM, we don't we don't know yet. We've gotten great feedback from potential customers of what we have in closed beta. This isn't the technical definition for private market fit. Yeah. I haven't really thought a whole lot on it, and if I had to define it like right now, at least for me, in terms of my personal take on it, is it's fluid, and every founder I've talked to has their own version of it based on the use case, the scenario, and the definition. Yeah, the, the way I define for us right now, i say product market fit is when you can sell it to someone and it actually works. Makes sense, 100%. Uh, so like for our SOM, if we sold it to them, it works. Same. And then, yeah, for our SAM, we've sold it to them. I don't know if it's going to work for them yet, but Makes sense. we'll see. And then can you sell it? Is it working? You know, neither for the TAM. Sweet. Um, I like to end with a couple quick questions I'm asking all my guests. So what are three resources that you would recommend to early or just people in their journey right now? It can be books, resources, mentors, founders, communities, whatever you want. Um, just three resources you recommend to someone. Yeah, the three resources that I'd recommend, I'd say one, I think that in terms of getting levers, kind of like what we talked about early on, I think that anyone who hasn't read Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill should read it. I think it'll change most people's lives. The second resource I'd recommend is that Running Lean book. I think it's by Ash Moria. Really, really recommend that. That book is really, really powerful. It's very focused on getting traction as quickly as possible and basically building mock-ups and using those mock-ups to take like a week or two and figure out if something's worth spending three months building as opposed to doing the opposite, which is what most people do, which is they take three months building something and they get about the mock-up in a week. And then the third resource that I'd recommend is People should follow that Alex Hormozy guy nice. on Instagram. Then we should listen to his podcast. That guy is like three decades ahead of 
his age and his podcasts are super short and to the point. And there's just so much value. Most people on here probably already listen to them. And if they don't, I learned a ton from that guy. Have you read his books? I've read the one. I read part of the other. I mean, his books are cool. If you're looking to like generate leads and stuff. Yeah. I, I like his other content better because it's more relevant to where Makes I'm sense. at. We, Makes sense. I don't have a sales problem to solve for. Sweet. Um, I ask all my guests, what's one question they have for the next guest? So the previous guest I had on, um, the question they had was, when something happened and you couldn't keep going, what did you think of, what did you think about that kept you going? I think the the toughest moment of running the business that we had was this last April, so like eight months ago. I think I told you about this on the walk. I went from having a you know, war chest and some money saved to spending all that. And then I got another hundred grand in either consumer or personal debt. I had, no, I had like a little over a thousand dollars to my name. And in order to hit payroll for my business partner, you know, who has a, a wife and, you know, yeah. mortgage and stuff, I put the last thousand dollars I had into the business. And at one point I had $38 and like nine cents left. You just mentioned this. Yeah. Yeah. And I just sat there and I just didn't look at there as being another option. I just believed that I was going to like find a way or make one. And I just asked myself, if all else fails, what can I do? If we run out of money, we don't get these next couple of checks from customers on time and I can't hit payroll, what am I going to do? And I, I asked myself that question. I said, like, my first answer for my subconscious was probably something along the lines of, oh, well, and we're done. There's no other way. And I always like to ask myself, well, and if there was a way, like, what would you do? Like, I always ask people that when I'm talking yeah. to them. They're like, oh, I just don't really know. It's, oh, I completely appreciate that. I know that it's a difficult question. And if you didn't know, what would you say? And my, my mind went to, oh, well, I, I could still sell my house. I got like, you know, equity in that. And yeah, my mind went, oh, well, I really like my home. You know, I've got like an, an amazing like tenant. He was like a buddy of mine who has his own business that he has been building. And like, you know, I like the community. It's like, you know, I like hosting this thing that I do. It's like, yeah. Well, how badly do you want? Like, well, more than anything. Well, I guess you're going to sell the fucking house then. I just stopped thinking about it. I just kept doing it. There, um, that Alex Ramosi guy, he has something that he says in his podcast. And he's always like, when it gets hard, you, he tells himself, this is what hard feels like. You thought it was going to be easy? No. You thought it was going to be hard. Well, this is what hard feels like. And you do what's required. I ran like 300 mile races back when I was like doing like the robotics thing. Yeah. And I did that because I had a lot of health issues as a kid. I wasn't supposed to be able to run like ever without yeah. medication. I did more than just like run a little bit. I did a bunch of running stuff yeah. to prove the doctor's wrong. And the last race that I did, I broke my foot. I got some stress fractures about like mile 60. And I walked the last 40 miles in like the dark in the middle of winter to like give my subconscious the message that when things get hard, you keep going until you break or it breaks, but not a moment sooner. Makes sense. And, you know, I finished that race flipping and like I got it done. I refuse to quit. Like you can, you can kill me and, and I'll stop. And if that doesn't happen, I'm going to keep going until I succeed. And, and if this business fail, which I don't think it's going to, and if it did, I would take everything that I learned and I would start working on the next thing. I like that. What's one question you have for the next guest, whoever it is? How big do you want to succeed and why? Sweet. Uh, is there anything you want to leave the listeners with? Anything you want to have them? Where can they find you? What are you working on? Any, any piece of advice? Whatever you want. Yeah. 
What I would tell the listeners, and I, I like to tell people this, because one of the most encouraging moments of my life was one of the, one of the really crucial moments when I was sitting there having that conversation with that mentor I mentioned about. He looked at me and he said, I believe he could do that. I think you totally could. And I had this guy that I met this list last week, and he was telling me, this guy's in this like early 20s, and he's like, that's where his goals were. I could tell this guy just had really big goals. He just seemed like the kind of person that was very intense and also seemed pretty competent, but definitely had big goals. So I asked him, what are your goals for next year, man? And he, he looked at me and he went, oh, my, my, my goal is to make up a million dollars next year. And I could tell he was also having like a, a rough time because I, I asked him like, well, look, what's, what's going on? You seem like you're kind of down a little bit. Like your, your energy is a little off. He goes, yeah, well, I'm not making as much progress towards the goal as I thought I would. I'm like, oh, 24 and you're not going to make a million dollars next year. And I looked at him and I said, well, first off, man, I love the fact that like you have goals like that. You must have been like, you know, raised well or by around people who gave you permission to have goals like that. And I looked at him and I went, well, first off, I totally believe you can make it happen. Most people are, <laughs> this is a Tony Robbins quote, and most people think they're lacking in resources and really they're just lacking in resourcefulness. 100%. My message to the listeners out there is that don't listen to anyone who tells you that your goals are too big or too crazy. Anyone who tells you otherwise, they, they're projecting their own beliefs that they have about themselves onto you. If you believe it, you, you, you can't achieve it. You just have to work hard enough and work long enough at it. And you have to be flexible in your approach and you have to be intelligent enough to un be aware of the results that you're getting. Figure out what's working, figure out what isn't, iterate and repeat. And if you do that for long enough, you can, you can accomplish anything and people underestimate or overestimate rather that what they can do in a year and they underestimate what they can do in a decade. So stay at it. 100%. Where can people reach out if they want to reach out to you? What's the best avenue? Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm we'll, we'll link everything in the description. Cool. I'm yeah. a weapons grade human on Instagram. Those are the best ways to reach me. Sweet. Thank you. Well, thank you for coming on, Brandon. It's a pleasure chatting and we'll stay in touch. Thank you, Abby. I appreciate you having me. Thanks for tuning into Funds and Founders. If you're a local Austin founder, a venture capitalist, or just someone who's building and in the middle of their journey and would like to be featured on an upcoming episode, submit your guest pitch to abhinavsinha.podcast at gmail.com. If you have a founder-specific event you'd like to promote on the podcast, you can also reach out to me. If you want to continue to get support through your founder journey, hit the follow button and I'll see you in the next episode.